Welcome to the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. Your hosts are Annika Melchert and Nora Hocker. Join them as they talk to hand-picked FinTech experts about the future of banking. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of our FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. With me, Annika, and my co-host Nora. Hi there. <laughs> Today is Peter Großkopf again. Yeah, hi. Pleasure to be with you again. Welcome, Peter. Great having you here. So for those of you who don't remember him from the last episode, or if you didn't have a chance yet to listen in, let me quickly introduce him. Peter is the former CTO of Solaris Bank and Börse Stuttgart Digital Exchange. And in the previous episode, we spoke about his experience And he shared some best practices he learned on IT and banking. So, if this sounds interesting to you, you definitely need to listen in to our last episode. But for today, coming from Peter's past activities and also looking into current trends, we'll deep dive into decentralized finance and also the future of banking. So, Peter, decentralized finance. What exactly is this trend about? Yeah, Probably all of the listeners have heard about the Bitcoin, which is a very trendy topic these days. So even cab drivers, people in the supermarket ask yourself, like, how do I get a Bitcoin? And uh, Bitcoin was a development which started 11 years ago, and it was actually a reaction on the banking crisis. So where hackers and data privacy motivated people, the so-called crypto punks were asking themselves whether well, the banking world seems to be broken, how to do it better and in a decentralized way or in a way where people can become their own banks. So the Bitcoin protocol was the first development of a blockchain that is publicly available. And so that's where Bitcoin comes into play, right? So could you tell our listeners a bit about what the Bitcoin is about and also what role the blockchain as a technology place in the world of Bitcoin. So what is a blockchain? A blockchain is a decentralized database that uh, runs on the public internet uh, where everybody can interact with and where everybody can operate a node. And the interesting idea about the public blockchain is that the participants who are acting in that network are unknown to each other. And that's, for example, the huge difference compared to a decentralized database that you would operate in your private data center, where you all the nodes um, that are connected to it and you know kind of all the stakeholders who are writing data to it. Blockchain technology and especially the Bitcoin protocol invented a way of really securing that the transactions that are made in the network are not changed or manipulated so that actually everybody who is interacting with the Bitcoin blockchain can really trust it. It's in the end not trust which is generated by banking licenses or having audits. It's kind of generated through code because kind of like the whole concept is developed in a way that you as a participant can trust that systems and all the interactions you're doing with it. We all know that blockchain is for sure not only about Bitcoin. There are also lots of other developments going on based on the blockchain technology that go beyond financial transactions, right? Well, we know that Bitcoin 
is kind of trend topic and it kicked off all the developments around cryptocurrencies and so on. There was a second blockchain project that also started a couple of years back. It's called Ethereum. And in comparison to the Bitcoin blockchain, which is more or less focused on financial transactions. The Ethereum blockchain is supposed to offer like a universal programmable supercomputer, which is decentralized, where you can also run small applications on top of it. And um, probably also some listeners have heard about smart contracts, which is kind of the name of such a program that runs on the Ethereum blockchain. And these smart contracts are used to kind of invent new cryptocurrencies that can be used in a specific place. It can be used to define non-fungible tokens, so the so-called NFTs, where people sell digital art and digital rights to customers. And with these smart contracts, you can also build more complex applications like decentralized exchanges where you can kind of do trades of assets um, against each other without like a, like a centralized uh, counterparty. And um, these smart contracts and all these developments um, around decentralized exchanges, having lending services, having staking services and financial transmission services are now called decentralized finance. So to me, that sounds a lot like we really change, let's say, more of the backbone of these banking services. How will that actually be different, let's say, for a bank user or for someone who wants to consume a banking service, even if there's no more bank? Yeah, from my point of view, now, like looking very far ahead, I hope that the usability and um, kind of the way these services feel to the user should really feel like financial services today. So I always use this example of the car, somebody who wants to get from A to B, just like takes a car and presses a button or like uses the key and just drives somewhere. And if it's an electric car or a normal car, you don't care about and also you don't care about how this works, like the technology behind it. And at the moment, most of these decentralized finance services really feel like flying in an airplane 100 years ago or so. It's, um, it's really edgy and you get in contact with a lot of technical things. I don't know, hash addresses and a lot of uh, blockchain terminology. So therefore, I would really call it the very early days of decentralized finance uh, still, especially when it comes to, to mass adoption. Cryptocurrencies already made this whole hype cycle from the kickoff to, to mass adoption. And we can see it from the fact that corporations like PayPal and uh, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and so on, all these banks are looking into cryptocurrencies as a new and upcoming asset class. There's already a demand also from the user side to invest into it. But in decentralized finance, kind of getting the opportunity of investing into a stable coin and getting an interest rate of between like 5 and 15%, that's something which is known to just a very low amount of people, but um, it will make its way to the public world because in the end, there's a really a lot of opportunity to deploy money and um, have it working in the background and getting much better interest rates than you would get from any bank. Hmm, that's an interesting statement coming from the perspective of a bank like we know them today. Do you think that those established players will be completely replaced 
or will they just play a different role? Well, I think there's still enough space to develop into these changes, uh, also in, in technology and delivery. But I think the speed of development now in the decentralized finance world is really insane. In the previous podcast, I was talking about kind of this this metric of speed of change. Yeah, so how much an organization is capable to really deal with the speed of change and kind of picking up with decentralized finance speed will be very difficult. Why do you think so? Because there's like a lot of foundational aspects that are very different to how financial service industry works right now. For example, all banks have like core banking systems deployed in their in their data centers, taking care for the ledger of transactions and also for reporting customer data and so on. And in the public blockchain world, you could compare it in a way that the ledger that collects the transactions and executes them is not operated in a private data center of a bank. It would be operated in a distributed network where nobody knows the participants who operate the nodes. Yeah, So you need to trust the software that's running on the nodes. So for example, the Ethereum blockchain is a public blockchain and you can audit and really um, see all the details about the code. And this, in the end, gives you a lot of trust because you have guarantees what code is executed and how transactions are processed and so on. But um, it's like a fundamental paradigm shift to, for example, not having your transactional ledger being operated by yourself. That really sounds different to how banks operate today, yeah. And um, on top of that, uh, there is like another paradigm shift that I would point to. And it's um, that kind of everything that you develop on a public blockchain also is public. So you can monitor smart contracts on the blockchain because it's in the end source code, which is deployed on the blockchain so everybody can see it. Therefore, the interfaces, also in terms of APIs, are public to everyone. And kind of this not only uh, brings um, new ways of thinking when it comes to deploying and uh, shipping applications, so like this whole application lifecycle management, um, because the continuous integration doesn't work that well anymore, because um, once like a smart contract is deployed on a blockchain, you can't change it anymore. You can only deploy like a new smart contract, and this uh, already also can produce some some headaches. And I would say the the concept of open APIs and open data uh, was introduced in the banking industry in a very hard process. So the so-called PSD2 that uh, was supposed to make lives of users or uh, banking customers uh, better. I think um, the whole process of getting to the directive and then also implementing it in banks um, was quite hard. And now on the public blockchain, you would come with open banking as default. Okay, that's an interesting concept. So how exactly does it work and how can our listeners imagine such a decentralized finance app? So in the end, um, each user of a DeFi app um, needs to have a wallet and the concept of a wallet could be compared with a bank account. But the difference is that this wallet is like a address on the blockchain where you can kind of uh, collect all your items, all your assets, and you prove yourself as the owner of those assets by having something which is called a private key, which comes from cryptography language. And um, once you have that private key, you uh, can access the assets and you can move them, sell them, 
whatever. And um, if you want to interact with a, with a DeFi application, usually you enter a website and you can connect your wallet. So it's, I would say it's like a combination of open banking plus uh, Google or Facebook login. Yeah. So if you want to compare it with the today's world, so you click that one button, then for example, your wallet opens on the smartphone or your in the browser integrated wallet uh, just opens and asks you for the password and just asks you if you want to connect that DeFi service with your wallet. So as you would do it with Google login, for example, as well. So you grant the access and then the smart contract that is behind the DeFi application, that's kind of the application logic um, in technical terms of the DeFi app, is able to interact with your wallet. And uh, for example, uh, if it's a decentralized exchange, um, you can sell some of your cryptocurrencies or if it's a NFT digital art auction platform, you can interact in an auction or buy a digital art and uh, then it gets settled against the cryptocurrencies that you have in your wallet and kind of maybe wrapping it up again. So what's what's happening here? So in the end, blockchain technology and uh, wallets give users kind of a really nice usability because you can sign up with a specific service, you can interact with it, you can do financial transactions by kind of like settling against the cryptocurrencies that you have in your wallet. And it's kind of just like a few clicks. Creating this user experience is something that banks were very hardly to build up. And kind of as an additional benefit of the blockchain, you would see real-time transactions once you decided to buy that digital art and uh, it gets settled against your wallet address. Then just a few seconds later, a few confirmations later on the blockchain, you are owner of that asset and the transaction is done. And um, yeah, getting to that user experience in traditional banking world, uh, yeah, <laughs> that would have produced us uh, a few more headaches. Maybe one question coming back to the legacy co-banking systems you referred to. You basically said that you will expect some decentralized finance-based co-banking systems in the future. Do you think it's realistic having some of the, for instance, large German banks running on such a CBS? That's a tricky question. From, from my point of view, first, I would say that the blockchain already builds kind of the transaction system as a part of the of a core banking system. Because um, I think we can define the term core banking system in different ways and the, probably um, all the listeners also understand it in a different way. But first of all, there's always the universal ledger for kind of uh, all the transactions that are done and for also the money which is um, held on the bank accounts. But then there's also reporting functions and kind of Bundesbank reports and so on um, also connected to it. And this all kind of makes up a core banking system. And from my point of view, especially when it comes to financial transactions and really following, so where money uh, is coming from and where it's going, um, can be very easily seen on, on the blockchain. And from my point of view, this uh, really brings um, all the aspects of transactional ledger only with the fact that it's deployed on a public blockchain. And to your question, if I really see see banks using it well from my point of view it will be a very very huge step and also when looking into regulation and rules how they are right now so for example 
that auditors need to be able to enter the data center uh, where the core banking system is operated. That's where my question was coming from. <laughs> That's very difficult if you um, don't know all the nodes where, uh, for example, the Ethereum blockchain is deployed and operated. And there's like a huge dissent. But on the one hand, we now see a lot of services that um, are like super transparent, uh, where I can follow all the transactions um, online and, and monitor it and audit it, but also in a, in a cheaper way and with uh, less friction. So kind of lending services in the DeFi space um, operate like with 10 employees and probably the smallest possible bank would have a few more than 10 employees. I think... Um, in the future, the truth will be somewhere in the middle. So because um, on the one hand, yes, I think it makes a lot of sense that um, companies or corporations or projects that are dealing with customers' money also have a lot of responsibility to do this uh, the right way. And this is where regulation comes into play. And um, so that there's no wild west and uh, people can't, like developers leave with the money of the users and, uh, and customers and um, just will never be found. So that should not happen. So therefore, we need to have rules. But on the other side, even in the today's world, we have these examples um, where also in, in traditional banks, the processes are not as transparent and audited <laughs> as we would really love to see it. And my most beloved example that I give on that aspect is the Wirecard thing that happened last year, because um, the aspect of having a bank account somewhere or like stating there's like an escrow account and we really guarantee you there's money, uh, but actually there isn't money, that would never happen on a blockchain. Why wouldn't it happen on the blockchain? Because everybody would be able to audit the transactions and it would be just like a, like a question of milliseconds, just like give me the wallet address and just to see if there's uh, like an amount of money on it. And if not, it doesn't exist. And therefore, I'm also looking 10 years ahead, I would say if the, the financial industry would move on public blockchains, that would probably create also a complete new type of uh, consultancy because we could have uh, audit companies that are non-profits, for example. Yeah, so it could be like Amnesty International for financial transparency or something. Uh, <laughs> and um, because the blockchains are public and you could write applications that just audit the financial transactions that are made for specific services and for specific companies and organizations. And you could have like an automized auditing that's done by third parties um, that are probably also not incentivized in kind of like also setting consultancy projects or whatever. So I think there's challenges seeing like existing regulation and seeing the new technology coming in. But I also see a lot of upside for not only for the banks and for the auditors and for the regulators, um, also for the customers who would benefit from the more transparent financial services. Yeah, I really like this this picture of transparency by design within such a kind of blockchain. One thing I wonder, however, is, I mean, transaction-wise, you have quite good transparency by using this system. Let's look at the, the interface to the customer itself. I imagine that you would still need some kind of KYC, know your customer checks that cannot be handled by a blockchain unless we had 
some kind of digital identity that was publicly available. So taking KYC as an example, are there maybe also other things where you'd say, okay, these are components that we have to take from the traditional banking world and make it work also in a decentralized finance universe? Um, yes, for sure. And, um, and also when talking about the topic of decentralization itself, from my point of view, on the long run, it's, it will work incredibly well the more surrounding services and topics also get decentralized or also get connected to the blockchain world. And the identity is definitely the first one, but there's already like a lot of projects also dealing with that aspect. So for example, also in the Ethereum world, there's like different standards that were developed. And in the Ethereum world, there's, for example, also the Ethereum identity standard. And this is in the end, like a, like a definition of a token that represents an identity that gets verified by some external parties. So you could like owning your passport or owning your ID card, you could have like a digital representation of it living in a wallet and then being used to sign transactions and to really verify at login that you're an identified person. And from my point of view, um, like the more handy you do it, the better, because I think um, also talking about some projects and banks, um, I think it has been like always a huge demand of, of banks to have some sort of universal ID. And also for fintech companies, I, I can say, because if you want to sign up for a new financial service today, like at a fintech, you need to KYC yourself again and again and again and again. So I, I don't know how many ID no processes I've um, already done. Um, I don't know. So I I must be known to, to ID now because I identified so often with them. I agree, yeah. And uh, you could... Of course, also use like a card reader and uh, use your digital ID card, but the usability is not good enough. My hope would be that having like a digital representation of an identity living in your wallet, uh, that would make things a lot easier. But um, when talking about kind of these, all these surrounding services um, to, to decentralize them, also to, to make them available to the blockchains, uh, just to give a few more examples, because um, you would be able in the future to have like a representation of real estate, like of an apartment, for example, as something which is um, tokenized on a blockchain. So because in the end, everything which is like a usage right or everything which is like a property right um, could be expressed in form of a token. And once you're the owner of the private key, you can also identify as the, as the owner. And therefore, you can in the end also transfer ownership and so on on it. Yeah, that sounds super easy. And actually, from a technical point of view, not that hard, right? So why why don't we have this already in Germany? The difficulty in the today's world is that most processes are paper-based. So for example, the property register in, in Germany is like a very, let's say, old school process. You um, need to make a claim through a notary office and, and so on and go there and then they read some stuff and it's like completely non-digital and you can't access it in a digital way. But um, if there would be this connection between kind of the property register and the token, and um, I can transfer ownership on a decentralized system, you could make it tradable. You could sell parts of it and so on. And this would be super beneficial in doing transactions like that. And the same stuff could happen with companies. Yeah. So um, if you, 
found like a company with somebody else and we, you have like a 50-50 share, you could also express it in tokens and have the representation of ownership in a token and then start exchanging them, selling them and so on. And this is like, from my point of view, the point where it really starts to, to become interesting because in the end, um, there's the blockchain as a transactional database where you can transparently follow transactions where an ownership of something was transferred from A to B. And if you really manage to digitize the surrounding systems, so kind of the databases and the contracts itself, and also the digital identity, you could digitize almost everything. And this sounds like very positive use cases for, for decentralized finance here. But how to avoid supporting criminal activities here for those transactions where we don't have an overview yet? Criminal activities on blockchains. I think this is a topic that uh, has been covered a lot also in, in media because um, it's definitely a thing that um, like in all financial services, banks take a lot of responsibility in trying to prevent money laundering and criminal activities. And it's a very also important responsibility that uh, banks and financial service company are taking on their shoulders, um, also in society, I would say. From my point of view, in the blockchain world, we really have the benefit that there's um, this open transaction layer that can be audited from, from the outside. So it's definitely like a challenge that the transactions are pseudonymous. So there's no real names written to the transactions, also um, simply of uh, data privacy reasons. So there's only wallet addresses, but there's a lot of services that really try to kind of identify where wallet addresses are coming from. Have they been used in illegal transactions on um, in the dark web, uh, on trading websites and, and so on? So these services really try to get as much transparency into the system as possible. And in the end, the huge benefit of a blockchain and of a public blockchain is that the transactions will stay there forever. And also all the uh, access points kind of, at least like in, in Europe, North America and so on. So where you are able to get fiat money into the crypto ecosystem or into the decentralized finance ecosystem and where you can get fiat out of the decentralized finance ecosystem um, are in the end um, protected by anti-money laundering laws. Also, AML5 um, uh, covers uh, wallets and people who are creating a wallet needs to be KYC'd and so on. And therefore, it's pretty much um, everything is done to really prevent criminal activity and money laundering happening on the blockchain network. And additionally, I personally would say that people who are using public blockchains for illegal transactions. It's like drug dealing at the Berlin Central Station. It's probably the worst place to do it because everybody can see you. And therefore, there's a statement of the Bundesfinanzministerium, so of the financial department of Germany. I think it's like a two-year-old report where they also say that fiat money or like uh, paper money is also used for criminal transactions and it's probably still also in the future the best instrument to do um, illegal transactions because nobody can track it and you don't have any fingerprint uh, where it's used and where it's coming from. So therefore, these digital ledgers like blockchains will add transparency to the financial systems and therefore it's way better than uh, kind of the traditional money. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always easier to criticize something new or something coming up than something that has already been in place, like forever. So taking into consideration maybe another trend um, and going a bit away from the risk and fraud topic. Um, and probably talking about the opposite of drug dealing in the, <laughs> <laughs> the Berlin Central Station. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, another huge trend is, is sustainability these days, obviously. And blockchain may not be the most resource efficient way of computing. So I mean, talking about that proof of work concept, how can you avoid this dilemma that the Bitcoin blockchain is currently running into, how can you sustainably operate a decentralized finance network? Yeah, maybe to pick up the listeners on that point. Um, so the Bitcoin blockchain is consuming a lot of energy and this energy consumption comes from a specific concept that is um, implemented to make the transactions really secure and really valid. And it's a consensus mechanism. And this describes like a mechanism how, let's say, the, the different blockchain nodes and the different uh, operators of blockchain nodes um, so that they really can trust the system and that the transactions are processed the right way. And the consensus mechanism, which is worked by the Bitcoin blockchain called proof of work, is based on the idea that Miners, so node operators, um, have to fulfill like a um, very um, difficult task where they have to process information. So the, the Bitcoin blockchain wants to set that incentive that if you manipulate something and you now operate a lot of hardware to solve that um, that mathematical riddle, then if you manipulate something, you will kind of not get any reward for being participant in the network. And um, then you would kind of stay with your energy consumption of your data center. And therefore, kind of this incentive to act the right way is um, brought into the into the network that people on the opposite have to pay kind of money for electricity. So that was the idea of the Bitcoin blockchain. It works great, but due to the increasing popularity of Bitcoin as a topic. Now it really gets crazy how much energy is consumed for solving these riddles and for operating the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, therefore, I always call the Bitcoin blockchain the steam machine of blockchains. But um, we've now seen a lot of development into much more energy efficient concepts um, for this consensus mechanisms. And um, there's, for example, the, the concept of um, proof of stake, it's called. It's in the end an idea where blockchains can be operated in a way that you kind of can operate a node on a very small device, um, so which is fed with solar energy, for example. Because in the end, uh, the idea is that if you're a stakeholder in the blockchain, you are able to participate in validating um, the blocks that are created on the blockchain. And behind it, there's like an incentive structure, again, that um, if you would not act in kind of like the interest of the whole network, then you would get a you would get a penalty. And um, so this way of processing transactions is way more efficient. Therefore, I also really hope that all the blockchains um, will also move on that consensus mechanism in the future, because um, then I would see an additional 
positive benefit from, from using blockchains compared with traditional data centers? Because in the today's world, and we were talking a little bit earlier about the core banking systems world, um, each bank operates like a lot of IT systems around um, their bank and uh, about around their ledger and so on. And um, if we would move the transactional ledger on a public blockchain or on a blockchain network, then we could really share the costs between all the participants. Because in the end, uh, we don't need to have like um, hundreds or thousands of ledgers of transactions. We could have kind of one central where we can see all transactions that are made between individuals. And um, from my point of view, if we move that direction, having like one central ledger plus um, consensus mechanisms that are energy efficient, I think then we're even moving towards a more sustainable operation in, in data centers. Thank you, Peter, so much for these insights. Our key takeaways for today would be first, there are a lot of advantages in terms of transparency and traceability that decentralized finance brings in by design. Also, what I've learned is that it may not significantly change the user experience, but very much the technological basis of how financial operations are processed today. Because, I mean, they will have a shared ledger instead of just one instance for each bank. It's very different by design. And lastly, the evolution of decentralized finance depends a lot on the public ecosystem, like we talked about digital identity, which we need to provide, or also a digital representation of assets like a house. I fully agree here. So from, from my perspective, ultimately, decentralized finance has the potential to disrupt banking as we know it today. Thank you so much for your insights, Peter. Yeah, so it was a pleasure to talk with you and to bring some aspects of, let's say, the traditional way of banking and also to like the possible or one of the futures of finance and of banking. And also happy to, to get feedback and also happy to join later down the road. Um, yeah, so I think in the future there is a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. And as we've heard, the space of digital banking is not the only one you're passionate about. So we're already looking forward to having you here again. Yeah, I will, I will keep you posted. And for all of our listeners, don't forget to hit the follow button. You've been listening to the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. BCG Platinian, your experts on IT strategy, modern technology architecture and state-of-the-art banking. The digital future is now. For more information, check bcgplatinian.com.